We begin uh, discussing a little bit so we can go through the Sermon on the Mount. And it was, it's, it's quite fitting that, you know, it ended up in the first Sunday. This is when we come together to celebrate communion. We break bread. We drink of the cup. We remember this and we do this in the, uh, in the Lord, of the Lord. We, we proclaim his death till he comes. And we believe that those that are baptized in the waters... In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are those that can come and, and partake of the bread and drink of the cup. And as we begin discussing the Sermon on the Mount, and we showed how here was Christ, not a mere man, declaring these things. He was very clear to show that he went up on the mountain, and the Jews were very used to this. This is God speaking in the flesh. This is no mere man that can come now and, and, and say, you know, you have heard it said in the law, but I tell you now these things. So he, he's being very clear in what is setting apart. And when we think of communion, this is what set them completely apart from their culture at the time. I mean, I, I had a chance when I studied early church history to, to study some of the readings of what the, the pagans would say about the, the believers that would come together to partake of the bread and drink of the cup. In a sense, the negative tones of they took, they said that we would come together, that we would commit incest because we called each other brothers and sisters and we loved one another. They would say that this is what the, the, the non-believing, the polytheistic, that you know, worshipped all the different gods, this is what they would say about the Christians, that we would come together and, and sacrifice infants and eat their flesh, and drink their... This is the thing that they would say because they would see a, a group of people that had no other reason to be bound to one another, no other reason to be connected to one another other than Jesus Christ and what He did for us. I mean, if, you, if you think about the, the body of the church, we are to be a witness upon the face of the earth of a group of people that are pulled out from the midst of the crowds to be brought together because of the call and promise that is in Jesus Christ. And this is what we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to the crowds, and out of the crowds, he's calling out his disciples. And he's speaking to the disciples in the hearing of the crowds. So it's, a, it's this, um, this, this mystery, right, that the disciples that follow Jesus are called from the crowds, and yet they live in the crowds. They can't escape the crowds. But yet they are, in a sense, accountable. The crowds themselves know what to expect out of the disciples. So this is the reason why, till this day, we see it. You know, it's horrible when somebody acts horrible. But when a Christian acts horrible, even if he doesn't even consider himself to be a Christian, but he goes by his family as a Christian, family or whatever, and then he or she does a certain, oh, did you see that Christian? Because the world knows the standards that the Christians are called out to. And this is the thing we have to be careful. It's not a standard for us to live by. It's the very being that we're called into. This is the, and when we, what Brother Paul read about the Beatitudes, what we discussed last week, and I kind of want to, I know it's repetitive, you know, it's, but I think that there's a great thing to be learned in repetition you know this i know the world thinks that memorizing is a bad thing but no it's not you know you hear stories of these children that grew up in church that 
they memorize verses. Like, I didn't do that when I was a kid. Okay, I, I just kind of ran loose. Um, I, I was, my family is mainly Catholic, so I kind of, I, I was the altar boy. I served, I went, did this, but I don't remember memorizing anything. I just remember being afraid of the, the statues. They used to creep me out. They, they creeped me out a little bit. And the sound of boards, you could hear, you know. And that really kind of creeped me out. So I don't remember memorizing anything. Just, I remember being creeped out by the whole thing. Um, but when you memorize, I hear stories of these Christian families that their children memorize verses, and then when these children grow old, they're in the, in the bind, and that thing that they memorized comes back to them. And it takes new meaning. It takes life. So repetition, there, there's a genuine humanity about repetition. But when we hear the blessedness, the blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is actually, and, and this is to word it in a better way, Bonhoeffer put it in a much better way than I can imagine. He says, every additional beatitude deepens the breach between the disciples and the people and the crowds. So th- this is, it just it deepens that breach. We know we who are called in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ, you who have had this tug in your heart, this conviction of sin, of somehow of, of God's judgment and His righteousness, all of a sudden you realize that there's something amiss. You're not the same that you used to be, but what are you to be now? So when we hear these blessings, it's the deepening of the breach. This is not something that some Christians have to be and others don't. That's something that also the early church created a, an elite, a group, right? The monks. They were these perfect Christians, right? They, were, they, 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 they had a vow of chastity, of poverty. They did all kinds of stuff. So if I could just, you know, maybe send them an offering, I could continue to be a bad Christian, but the elite body in the Christian church, they could continue to be in the genuine Christians. So that's not what we're supposed to, to, to do. God forbid that. Don't think that one day, oh, one day I'm doing well and the next day I'm not. This is Christ showing us the very nature of the new creature, this child of God. Of this one now, when he closes, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely. On my account, the disciple realizes that what he's going to bear upon the face of the earth, he will bear it on the account of Christ. Now the question that we, we ought to ask is, are the things I'm bearing on account of my own stupidity and errors? Or is it truly, genuinely, in regards to Christ? Am I suffering what I am suffering because I'm beginning to actually lead this life following in the footsteps of Christ? That's a question that should be fervent in the mind of every Christian. We can't allow that to cease. And this is when we read last week when he began on, at the end of um, verse 15 when he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we are to be seen. The good works that we do are to be seen so that all the world will give glory. They will begin to recognize and give glory to God, our Father who is in heaven. Now many of us will say, what are these good works? 
of two in the hearing of these people, Jesus had listed them. They're the beautitudes themselves. This isn't me trying to muster up good things that I do. Like I, I was talking one time to a gentleman, and uh, he said to me, he's like, you know, I don't understand much of the, the, the scripture thing, and, but, I, you know, I keep the point system. And I asked him, like, what, what is that? What, what's this point system? He's like, I know that if I do enough good things, I'll get points into heaven. And the more bad things I do, I'll get points into hell. And I'm looking at him I'm like, well, that kind of puts you in a jam because now there's a different standard for everyone. And I really didn't know. I mean, he was really set on this. If I do good, I will get there. If I don't do good, that will kind of bar me from there. And that's not what Christ is establishing for us because he, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no other way to the Father if not through him. And the language that he's introducing is this language of a fatherhood. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He has opened the way. He has redeemed us. Right? He has laid a hold of us who were dead in our trespasses, at enmity with God, and made us new creatures so that we can come before our Father who is in heaven. And the good works are those very things that are the nature of the new being that we are now, that we ought to be. It's this poverty of spirit, this mourning, this meekness, this hungering and thirsting. Now you know what you ought to hunger for, what you ought to thirst for. I mean, the world knows elements of this. They know the shadow of these things. But we who are here and now know the emptiness of it without Christ. And that troubles us. Because how do we introduce this? How do we show this to others? And notice that Christ is not... This isn't a, a message that he's, he's putting aside, hiding it. This is something he's being very clear in the hearing of the crowds and in the disciples. So this idea that we have to have a certain you know, message for the, those Christians that have been going to church since they've been born and in a message that's different for those that haven't heard the gospel before. It's a dangerous line because then... Jesus is giving out this message to all that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not an easy message to hear. So as he established this, why don't we keep moving forward? In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's binding, again, what we see on him, opening out his mouth and speaking. He's, he's showing us the truth of the law and the truth of the prophets that all point to him. And this is what we're celebrating, the fulfillment of this work in his flesh, in the drinking of the cup, the realization of this, till he comes again. And he's being very, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is key for us to understand. There is a fulfillment of it. Everything that God gave to Israel to do. Remember, we discussed it when he set them free from Egypt. He redeemed them out of Egypt by, through Moses. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments while they were in Egypt. So they didn't say, okay, we did this, we did this, we did this, so God now set us free. That's a beautiful image of what is happening to us in Christ. He set them free and gave them the law. Christ sets us free 
And now shows us who we are, a new creature, what we are bound to, what we're made for. So he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them. So there is a doing. It's not a, we're not doing to gain, but because we're gained of the Lord, there's much a doing. So the, but he's telling us not to relax things. Because we are saved by grace and grace alone and Christ alone, this doesn't mean that, oh, you know, now we can just discard. Like there's many that says, we can discard the Ten Commandments. We can discard the law. And we notice that he's going to go far beyond the Ten Commandments. I mean, just the beginning. Can you imagine me and the crowds and the disciples hearing this? I mean, the, the crowds that's hearing him were familiar with the old covenant. And now he's saying, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and this is the tone that we have to see that Christ takes throughout the whole sermon. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is shocking to hear. I know in our years today, we're kind of dead to the shock of it. But imagine, he just took hold of all the promises that were set aside for the nation of Israel. Right? The kingdom of heaven belonged to the peculiar people, those that were chosen. No, and now he's declaring all that promise to a, a group of people that he has chosen, to the disciples. Now, if that wasn't shocking enough, now he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does this mean? What can this right? Because the scribes and Pharisees, they knew not how to keep the law, because they didn't fulfill it. They failed utterly. You read the Old Testament, it's an account of how historically the people of the Old Testament faithfully went against God. That's what they faithfully, and they did evil. My wife said, we were reading Judges. And now you see it clearly. God comes, rescues them, for a period they have peace, but then they do evil in the sight of the Lord. God comes, rescues, but then they do evil in the sight of the Lord. There's this constant... Even, I mean, and even you read the prophets. Like there was a, a reading, um, I think it was of Elisha in his old age. He's this bitter old man, alone, set aside. I mean, the great Elisha, the prophet who did all those, that follow after Elijah, all of these things. You, you see this sense of bitterness and anger that he set aside. And not realizing all of them, they didn't, they didn't fulfill the law. They didn't. They were to live in an expectancy of one who would come and fulfill it. We don't live in that expectancy anymore. We live in the fulfillment of it. Because the angel went to Mary and said, The one that's being formed in your womb is holy. And we know that the law is holy. So only one who is holy can lay hold of the holiness of God and fulfill it. If any one of us here attempts to lay hold of the holiness of God... We will die. The Old Testament is full of this shadow of pointing. Moses, take off the sandals off your feet, for the ground that you're standing in is holy ground. 
right? The, uh, I forgot his name, but the man, the, they, they were moving the ark around. And he laid the ark, fell. I mean, he went to help. And he laid hold of that thing that was carrying the ark in a wrong manner. And God killed them. And the language of the Old Testament is God sold the people into the hands of the king of Cain. I mean, this language is just, if we attempt to lay hold of the holiness of God apart from Christ, it will kill us. And that's what the law is supposed to do. The law is supposed to show you and I, it's supposed to expose the sin that is in us. And that's what it faithfully does. It is a tutor. It's faithfully guiding us, showing us where we fall short until that great day, right? And it was a wonderful day. Remember Simeon when he sees the child being brought in it, he says, now I can die. He says, I can, I've seen the salvation of God. And he's holding this child to be presented before the Lord. Imagine that that child grows and he's about, what, 12 years of age and he's in the temple teaching these scribes and Pharisees in regards to their own righteousness, to their own law. And they're all amazed at him. Think of it, the very place that would one day turn on him. When he was 12, he's in there being respected as one who teaches them. And that would be the very place that, you know, Mary and Joseph was. Why are you doing this to us? We've been crazy looking for you for three days, right? Oh, he, he was actually in the lion's den. In that very place that would be the, the place that would pass judgment upon him. Those very people. And here now, this time has passed, and he's speaking clear, unless your righteousness exceeds. See, the Pharisees, their righteousness could never fulfill because they were attempting to fulfill it. They were attempting to be obedient. I mean, there was a, a belief in the Pharisees in that time that if they could get all of Israel to obey the law, at that moment, when all of Israel obeyed the law, the Messiah would come. Right? We Christians have this false belief that we think that if we get everybody to hear the word of the Lord, boom, Jesus is going to come back. That's Pharisaic. We don't, it's not given to us to know the times and seasons that the Father has set apart for Himself. What is given to us? To look unto Christ and follow after Him. And to have our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. They were attempting to fulfill something that they had no powers to fulfill. We are being brought into that law that has been fulfilled in Christ. That's how our righteousness exceeds. The language that they use, it's how it towers over. It's greater than. And we see this in the language of Christ. One greater than Solomon has come. One greater than Jonah. He is the greater one. And when we believe in Him, right? When we begin to Romans chapter 10, right? If you confess with your mouth, why don't we turn there quickly? In Romans chapter 10, beginning of verse 5, Paul is dealing with this righteousness. He actually begins to, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Who does the commandments? None of one of them did it. And if we 
Keep going. It says, look at verse 9. Because if you confess, notice on verse 6, but the righteous based on faith says, do not say in your heart. This righteousness that is based on faith has something to do with the heart. Something to do with the very inside of man. The very being of man. This righteousness that is a doing is basically an exterior thing. If I do this and I do this, and later on we're going to get on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, beware. If you're doing things to be seen of others, beware of that. That's your reward. That's what you get. If you're doing things to be seen by others, right? If a father is being, I want to use examples because I don't think I'm dealing here with any you know, rock and roll star that's coming in from drugs, sex, and drug, you know, all that crazy. Because we, we're, that's all easy to see as big, bad sins. We don't see the, the little things, right, that we call them little things. If you notice Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's not dealing with this huge, he's dealing with anger, he's dealing with lust. He begins to deal with something far deeper with this thing of the heart, this inner thing. So Jesus is going to say, be careful if you want to be seen by others. So imagine a father who's being a good father just in front of others to be seen by them. And then his children grow old. And then he doesn't realize that his children never want to see him. Maybe he goes, what did I do wrong? What, what I did wrong? Well, you, were, you got your reward because you were only a good father when you were being seen by others. So all that applause that you got, oh, Tiago's a great dad. He's a great dad. You got your reward. You actually weren't that great of a father when you were alone with them. Maybe you were too busy on the screen of your phone or too busy in the shop somewhere. And they realized how busy you were when it was just you and your children and your wife and how you were there when it was be seen by others. So you got your reward. And then later on, they're gone. Hey, that's a, a heavy, that's something, to, I'm dealing with that now, right? I'm, it's, it's easy to be a good father in the eyes of people. It's different when the only eyes are the eyes of your children. And, and our focus, we need to be cautious. This, this righteous doing, this attempting to do, is an exterior thing that you can put out to be seen. But this righteousness that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart. It deals with something that is, is much deeper, much more um, you and God, God and you, and that's it. And then out of that unity with God, we overflow. And that's what we're going to see Jesus dealing with the heart in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes beyond the exterior. He reaches in the interior. And think of um, a, a great image that that makes it easy for me to understand. is Jesus walking on water, right? And Peter saying, Lord, if it's you, come out. Call, I'll call me and I'll come out to you. And he, Peter goes and walks. But suddenly Peter begins to look at the waves and hearing the sound. And I'll look to Christ and what happens? He sinks. But then there's this beautiful image that who reaches in the waters, in the darkness? Christ. And he reaches in there and he pulls him out. That's the incarnation. He reached into being a man. He, was, he became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And he, this is where he reaches us, in the very innermost place, in that secret place that no one can see. 
No one knows. No father, no mother, no husband, no wife, no brother or sister. None know that secret place that you are bid to go and enter and pray to your father who sees in secret. So this righteousness that is on faith is an innermost thing. And look what he goes on to say on verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So there's this, this continual confession of His Lordship. Of believing in Him. Of trusting in Him. But I don't quite get it. You're not there to get yet. There's a confession. Right? That's right. I think it's beautiful that on, when we participate in communion, we confess the covenant that we have the church covenant together. And before communion, we confess the creed. And this bears repetition. It reminds us what we're doing here. It's part of that remembrance. It shouldn't be the only thing that reminds us, but it's part of it. It's a good thing to have. But so this confession of the Lordship of Christ and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... One believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So, this new heart that believes. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the ESV, I don't think it says by no means. It says... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think the King James Version says, by no means. Here is, you will never. Imagine that. Unless your righteousness exceeds, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee, Nicodemus by name. And he says, verily, verily, I tell you, unless a man is born again, or born from above. He cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And unless he is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter it. So this righteousness that exceeds is not the righteousness of my doing. It's the righteousness of the doing of Christ. And knowing that He has fulfilled it, knowing that He has done it, now I abide in it. I trust in His work upon the cross at Calvary. I trust on the work of the Father of the resurrection. I trust in that. I move in that, and I find my being. Now, I'm not going to keep going too much, because we've got communion to celebrate. But this is what sets up for him on verse 21, and saying, You have heard that what is said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the hell of fire is the place where Hades, all of hell will be thrown into. This is the final judgment. This is Gehenna. This is the place that only God has dominion and control of. Listen how intense. So, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly. See this urgency? This is the urgency. It's the same. It's still bound to the urgency that Christ began to repeat, preach. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So there's, there's this constant urgency in the life of the Christian to give no room to sin. It's not that we're going to be perfect little people as we see perfect little people upon the face of the earth. We will be perfect as God is perfect. Seeing Christ. Beholding Christ. Leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I mean, this is talking about anger. And there's this element. We, I mean, psychology can explain to you the prison that anger will put you into. But this is not just dealing with anger in Christ. Because Christ is not just dealing with the, the aftermath of, math of sin. The consequence of sin. He's dealing with the very root of sin. He's ripping it out. And I mean that literally. Like a, there's a, a ripping out. It's not going to be something delicate. It's not going to be something pretty. It's, it's a constant thing. I mean, God said we had a heart of stone and that he would give us a new heart of flesh. Our problem is we don't want to give up the heart of stone. We want to hold on to our rights. We want to hold on to the offenses. Oh, but so-and-so did this to me, and this, this was done to And Christ is saying, no. Why can he say such a thing? Because he fulfilled the law, and he's inviting us to participate of him. And in this invitation, when we go to him, if you read the Pilgrim's Progress, when... He looks up at the cross. Whoever read it, if you haven't read it, pick it up. It's awesome. But here's Christian with this burden on his back. And the beautiful thing is when he looks at the cross, the burden falls off. He didn't understand the cross. He didn't come to terms with it. Oh, now I can get it. No, he looked at it. Our invitation is to look to him. So in a moment of anger, look to him. In a moment of displeasure, look to Him. In every moment that you know you're going to give room to sin, look to Him. And I guarantee you, if you truly are looking at Him, the burden will fall. Heavenly Father, I am grateful to You for this moment to take the words of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and lay them in our hearts. Father, make our minds captive to them. Lord, this is Him beginning to exercise his ministry upon the face of the earth. This is Jesus in the flesh preaching to the crowds, calling out the disciples. And here we are, Lord, a couple of thousand years after. Before us is the bread and the cup. We can look back, standing here in the now, and made sure of your glory to come. Heavenly Father, help us in Christ. Lead our hearts to you. 
Grant us that desire to be accepted and embraced in you alone. Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm going to ask the church to please stand and the elders to just be ready for passing of the bread and the cup.